Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. In uh, first-year economics classes across the country, you, you usually begin the semester with the principles of supply and demand. You learn that incentives matter and that to suggest otherwise is to betray basic principles of economics and human nature. You learn that you can ignore and violate these fundamental laws, but that you cannot change them. Throughout history, the societies that have succeeded recognize and respect these uh, economic laws. They use them to their advantage. Well, someone needs to get this message to progressive Democrats, and soon, because they have become completely unmoored from economic realities, and their agenda will end in economic disaster. Uh, with me to talk about that is someone who knows a lot about it, my old friend Kevin Hassett, who served in the Trump administration as senior advisor to the president and is former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. He's the senior advisor to National Review's Capital Matters, which is a new initiative so focused on financial and economic coverage, and is the vice president of Lindsay Group. He also, most importantly, is the author of a forthcoming book in November called The Drift, which is about America's slide into socialism. So. Um, I can't wait for the book, but I'm gonna, we're going to get a sneak preview here. So, Kevin, welcome. It's great to be uh, here with you, Bill, and it's, we've been friends for 20-something years. So, yeah, so. we both first met on the that's AEI. That's right. Yeah. Well, anyway, here we are, and we're in the midst of a terrible reconciliation bill, $3.5 trillion. It's really probably 5 or $6 trillion. It gets into all the things the socialists have been dreaming about for years. What, what, what's the book about, though? What, what, give us... Give us some right. uh, sense of what, how you see things. Well, well, really, the book, it's called The Drift, uh, describes the world that we live in today and um, connects basically Donald Trump's presidency to big historical forces that are pushing the country towards socialism. And if you watch and you see like all the successes, which are documented in the book, that President Trump had on economic policy, you know, the lowest ever uh, black unemployment rate, the highest wage growth ever for African-Americans, income inequality declining because his deregulatory and, and you know, tax cutting agenda really, really worked. You could ask yourself, well, wait a minute, you know, the left has told me all along that they really care about social justice, that income inequality is the most important issue. And you would think that they would celebrate these victories, right? Like if, if the numbers actually speak that way, if the score you know, goes up, your team's winning, if income inequality's going, going down, then if you're social justice dude, you ought to be happy. But instead, right, they're more enraged by Donald Trump than probably any president in history. And if, and if you look at it, you know, impeached twice by these people for really very, very minor things. And so, you know, ask yourself, why is the left so crazed about Donald Trump? And, and where does he fit into the great arc of history? And I think that's really what the book's about. And, and the bottom line is that our country is in an organized drift towards socialism. Uh, it's incredibly well organized. And what Joe Biden's doing right now is a big part of the final steps to socialism. And Donald Trump was a very successful president, but one that was very controversial with the left because he took socialism on straight on. You know, you remember 
Bill, he would talk about it a lot in speeches, and it drove them crazy. It absolutely drove them crazy, and that's why they act the way they do towards Well, them. he took on political correctness and all the, all the political cant and made himself an enemy, not only the Democrats, but the establishment Republicans. And, right. um, you know, because he actually got things done. He got things done, and, and, and one of the things that comes across uh, for people who read the book that have talked to me already is that the public persona of Donald Trump is much, much different from what he was like when we're actually in the Oval Office, we're in the West Wing, working on real policy problems. And so, you know, who would have thought, like, like you know uh, Donald Trump a little bit and you know his public in image bill. Sure. And you've yeah. known me for 20 years. The idea that President Trump and I would become friends is like it almost... Would, it wouldn't be my first uh, yeah, connection. Yeah, or that he would really like working with me and invite me back uh, during the COVID crisis to be senior advisor with an office right there in the West Wing. You know, so, so the reason I think is that... that Donald Trump, you know, behind closed doors, is an incredibly nice guy who's very thoughtful. You know, he, he likes to see all the sides of the arguments, but also does like little touches, little personal touches that I know when you were a CEO, you would do. But as an example, uh, this is a story in the book, that uh, I would brief the president whenever uh, the economic data would come out before the data came out. Uh, sometimes the night before, because the CEA chairman is the only person in government who gets the data the day before, mm -hmm. or sometimes the morning of. One time I was in Paris doing a diplomatic mission on a jobs day. And uh, my chief of staff is a woman named DJ Norquist, and she's a New Yorker. President Trump's a New Yorker. You know, they both are kind of talking with their hands in the Oval all the time. And the two of them became very close. And so I told the president, geez, I can't come brief you on the jobs data uh, because I'm going to be out of the country. And so I'll send one of the other members, one of the other economists. Uh, and he said, no, don't do that. Send DJ. Because you're, you're, your chief of staff, she knows the numbers as well as you economist guys. And I want to see, I want to see DJ. And, and so uh, the morning of the jobs numbers, DJ's really nervous because she's got to brief the president on economic data, and she's been around economics for a long time, but she's not an economist. Uh, and she gets out of her house and goes towards her car, and she breaks her leg. She steps in a pothole, and she breaks her leg. But DJ being DJ, she limps in, she you know, drives her car in, limps into the West Wing, limps in to brief the president, and then limps back to her car and goes to the hospital and they put like a pin in her leg and a cast and things like that. And when the president found out about this, he wrote her the sweetest note, like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> you know, next time go to the hospital. <laughs> But on another. No, uh, so did she brief the president? She with briefed a the president leg? with a broken leg, and, and she's tough enough that, that he didn't find out until after. But when he found out, he wrote her a really sweet note. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I would be in the Oval at times, and friends of his that were sick, you know, or, or even dying, I, I, he would take calls right away, interrupt meetings to do that. One of my staffers got colon cancer, and he found out about it and sent that person a note. And, and, and so I think that the sort of backstory of like, first, there's all this great policy success, but then maybe someone might say, oh, it's an accident because this crazy buffoon that I see on TV could have possibly done that. But if you actually look at the meetings and look at, you know, my discussion of what we were talking about and why President Trump made the decisions that he did, they can see he's actually a really smart uh, guy with really good policy sense. And that's why the economy was doing so well pre-COVID. Well, I think people don't recognize that he likes to listen and he likes to listen to lots of points of view, and he likes to listen to people who disagree with him, and he yeah. doesn't shut him down. Oh, but and he likes to see like real. But he battle. doesn't like to listen to you if he thinks you're stupid. 
he likes to see real battles, though. Which is why I think you got along with him. Because, oh. You know, you happen to be very smart. Oh, cut it out. But, but, but I could say that, that one example of something, and this would be another thing that would surprise you, but, but I've been kind of a free trader uh, my whole life. But Donald Trump taught me a lot about what I didn't get right on trade because economists get trade wrong a lot. And, and he's actually right. Like when I got into the White House, we would look at the trade deals that previous presidents had signed with other countries. And we had basically just given away everything. What did, right? you, what did you learn about? That's interesting because I was a unilateral free trader. Just mm -hmm. open it up. We're going to do business with everybody. And, the, and the, 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 that, that rising tide is going to lift all our boats. What did you learn on trade that made you go from... The yeah, I, I really flipped and became, you know, like I'm not tariff man, but I totally understand yeah. what he was doing and think he was incredibly successful at it. But I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, that, so prior to us coming to the White House, we had the, a previous administration negotiated a Korean free trade deal. Uh, and in the Korean free trade deal, the U.S. opened up our auto market to Korean autos and Korea opened up their market to U.S. autos. And, you know, President Trump comes in and, you know, he says, so tell me, how are we doing? And, you know, Koreans have really great cars. They've got a big share of the U.S. market. And there's not like a single U.S. car sold in Korea, like not one or just about not one. And so then we dig in, like, why is that? And it turns out that uh, this is it, it's kind of a long story, but it's an example of how we're getting screwed all the time in these trade deals. And President Trump fixed it. Uh, so, so when you go buy a car, right, you get the price from Consumer Reports or something, right? And then you go into the dealer and you drive a hard bargain. And the dealer doesn't really make money when they sell you a car. Hmm. Um, when they make the money is when you take it in to get service. Right. Right. Uh, and then you're probably going to be loyal to them. And so five or 10 years, you're going to go in once or twice a year. And mm -hmm. it seems like it always costs 500 bucks at least, right? Whatever you take it in to get service. That's a minimum, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And so that's where they make the money. Well, in the Korean, the previous Korean free trade deal, uh, the Koreans agreed to allow U.S. companies to sell the cars in Korea, but not to service them. Oh, okay. And we had signed off on that. Yeah. And, and, and so the point is that these trade deals are filled with thousands of lines of stuff that clever people, you know, basically negotiated with, you know, loser previous administrations that didn't actually understand what was happening to them. And they were cleaning our clock. And, 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 and so on the trade front, you know, I went in and I'm like, oh, geez, tariffs, you know, if you put them in an economic model, it's really going to hurt the country. Ooh. But he put these tariffs on. And then all of a sudden, Korea says, OK, we don't want the tariffs, so let's renegotiate the deal. And then we actually got a good deal. They took out the stuff that, that really stopped. Well, it seems like what he did is that he broke down the, the, the barriers between the silos. I mean, we've had State Department and defense and commerce and, and then the private sector. And the people in government tend not to want to interact with the private sector that much. And so you had people negotiating these deals that didn't really have that much skin in the game. And what he did, I think, is he really got everything. He, he broke a lot of eggs and got people interacting um, among and between the agencies and made, made, um, made trade part of our diplomacy, which it hadn't been before. Right. That's right. And, and another example of that, which, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Bill, but um, that, you know, so all the European countries are members of NATO, and they've all agreed to spend 2.5% of their GDP on defense. Well. And yet none of them do. Right. And, and here we are basically carrying the load for all of NATO at the same time that they've got like really crappy trade deals with us that are disadvantaging our uh, companies in their countries and running big trade surpluses with the U.S. And so Trump, you know, basically, you remember, he famously sort of had some troubles with uh, uh, Angela Merkel that he really didn't get along. And in part, it was because like she was sort of lecturing him 
about like why he needs to respect deals and stuff when all the deals that he inherited were really, really bad. And, and she herself wasn't respecting the most important deal, which was to provide for the defense of Europe by spending enough money on defense. In fact, I, I remember calculating the number for the president that, that Europe uh, or Germany could have met its treaty obligation to spend two and a half percent of GDP on defense uh, and still had a budget surplus when we took office. Uh, and, and they still didn't do it, right? So, so they, yeah. they had the money to do it, but they wouldn't do it. And so he said, oh, you know what? We're going to put auto tariffs on every car from Germany. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll increase our defense spending. That's what I mean. Right? He, linked, yeah. he linked the two things that had yeah. never been linked. Exactly. Uh, you're watching the Bill, Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Kevin Hassett, former economic advisor to President Trump, and we're, we're learning about what it's like to, to work for him. Uh, what, what surprised you most? Uh, yeah, I think that, that what surprised me the most was that what a different person he is one-on-one yeah. and, and how thoughtful he is about those around him. Again, like sending notes to sick people and things like that. That, that he, you know, he plays a really tough guy on TV and he is a really tough guy. If you look at what he went through and he kept going and sure. taking it, I couldn't have done that, I think. But, but, but that really surprised me. I, you know, I was a little, uh, I didn't really know him when he asked me to do the job. And I was a little anxious about it. Like, what's going to be like working for this guy? Uh, and, you know, is he going to fire me a month How in? How much did and, he test you? Oh, he, you know, you, you absolutely see it right away. And again, this, this reminds me of something that CEO Bill would have been doing. That, that my very first time I went into the Oval, um, Gary Cohn said, well, you know, we got to get the president, now that he's got The Economist here and stuff, we got to get the president used to economic briefings. So, uh, you know, prepare whatever you think he needs to know about the economy in a little slide deck. He loves slides. He really does love slides, too. He likes to flip through things, and he has a Sharpie, and he marks them up and so on, and and, uh, and, and do that. And so, so I did, and I had a lot of uh, interesting data at the time that was, like, telling about what was going on in the economy right there. But one of my first slides just showed what was going on with real estate prices around the country. And um, the main theme of the presentation is that there's like hot places and cold places. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, I'll return to that thought. But I had a map, and then in Florida, real estate prices on the map had been declining in the previous year. It was one of the places where real estate prices weren't booming, but in other places like Colorado, they were. And then he looked at me and he said, look, you know, what's the one thing I know? Real estate. <laughs> and, and you're showing me a map where... Florida real estate prices are going down. That's just wrong. You're showing me data that can't be correct. You've made a mistake. Uh, I bet you did that every time a new guy came in, right? And then, and then, like the right answer is, hell no, I didn't make a mistake. You know, right. here's why the numbers negative, even though like the you know, I'm sure Palm Beach, you know, where you own stuff is doing great, right? But the Panhandle isn't doing so great, and 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 and, and that was the kind of stuff at the beginning that he would do. Because and, he, and I saw him then subsequently when new people came in, that he would do that all the time. He says, what the hell are you showing me? This doesn't make any sense at all. You, this is wrong. And then if you're not willing to like go to the president and say, no, it's guns, not yeah. wrong, yeah. Then, then you're not a person that should be on the team. <laughs> but you're right. So he did test. But, but then I, I had an experience from that first briefing, too, that I wanted to add that was sort of kind of funny, too, and showed sort of like his cleverness. So one of the things that... I, I said in that presentation, remember that there's hot places and cold places, was that one of the big problems in America then and even now is that it used to be that if there was a hot place where, you know, basically the unemployment rate zero and there's all these jobs, but nobody can fill them, 
then people would move from the not so hot places to those places. And so let's just say Mississippi's not doing so good, Colorado's doing really well, that was something that was true then. Uh, then you would see you know, people move from Mississippi to Colorado and take jobs. Uh, but the extent to which people are moving to take jobs is the lowest it's like ever been, or it was when, when I was analyzing the data for the president right at the beginning of the administration. Yeah. La labor, more, more, uh, what is that, mobility. Yeah, labor mobility. Was, yeah. And so people stopped moving to jobs. And so we have all these <coughs> vacant jobs. And if you really want the economy to grow, we got to like talk people into moving. And there's even like there's some economists who say we should subsidize moving when people do that, like give them a tax break to move. But in any case, that was just part of the presentation. And this is sort of after I passed the test. And so I get back to my office and before I get to my office and, and it was across my, you know, when I, when I came back as senior advisor, I was right in the West Wing. But but I was in the in the Eisenhower building just across the driveway, you know, so, so it's, it's like a three minute walk from the mm -hmm. oval there. By the time I got back to my desk, um, my chief of staff sent me an email and said, look what the president tweeted. And, and he tweeted, hey, if you don't have a job, you should think about moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a lot of there was a lot of bureaucratic noise between your good idea and his action, which was one of the great things. Another way it. he tested, by the way, it's just a funny story, is that he would tweet about what I was talking about while I was on TV. And then the interviewer would say, well, the president just tweeted this. What do you say to that? <laughs> and so he would sort of. His, and I think that was kind of like the the mischievous guy well, him, that Gingrich, he enjoyed kind of yanking the chain of his friends. Newt Gingrich of. tells the story that worked the opposite direction. He said if he wanted to get to the president on an issue, he got it on he got on Fox and started talking about the issue on Fox. And then when he would uh, finish his hit on Fox, the phone would ring and Trump would say, "What did you say that for?" Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or that's a good thing. Very, very often, that if you uh, go into the Oval. Uh, then, of course, there's the oval that everybody's seen on TV a million times. But then if you go to the right, there's a little room that has like a table, like a kitchen table kind of thing or a dining room table and a bunch of leather chairs around it. And that little room is where he really, really loved to hang out. And hmm. um, he would sit on sort of your side of the table. And then right behind me, there's this giant screen TV that he had on um, usually Fox. Mm -hmm. and, and so whenever we were having meetings, or very often when we're having meetings, he's kind of multitasking and keeping an eye on the television at the same time. And then he might actually say, hey, hold on now. Uh, you know, <laughs> Newt's talking well, or something like well, that. Let's, let's try to bring this back to the drift and mm -hmm. the socialism. I mean, uh, he wasn't a classically trained economist, yet he had great instincts. Right. I mean, how much did his line up, his policy ideas line up with your ideas of classical liberal economics, taxes, regulation, Oh, totally, trade. except yeah. for trade. But then I actually learned that he was right on trade and I was kind of wrong on trade. Huh. But but where the drift comes in is basically uh, that, and this goes back to understanding the historical forces that yeah. have moved us where we are. Yeah, but let's, also, let's, let's do that. But also what we have to stand up against. So we have to fight this or we are going to become a socialist totalitarian country for sure. And and, and so the, the broad historical sweep is just this, that... Uh, Joseph Schumpeter, really famous economist, uh, back in the 20s, looked ahead to America's future. And he said, you know, he's often viewed as like a defender of capitalism, but he was kind of a fatalist. He said that the socialists are going to win. And if you look at why... That was 19, 100 years ago. 19, yeah, 100 years ago. He yeah. said the socialists are going to win. And, and so why did he say that the socialists are going to win? Well, he said, well, what's going to happen is capitalism is going to work for a while, at least through the 70s, he said. Uh, and we're going to get really rich. And as we get really rich that what's going to happen is that everybody's going to stop like having their kid work at the shop or having their kid work at the family farm, and they're going to send their kids to college. 
And the colleges are going to be basically uh, places that indoctrinate folks to be socialists. And then he talked a lot about why professors were so socialists. He said this in the, you know, 100 years ago. And he said, so, so our kids are just going to be indoctrinated into a religion of socialism by higher education, by the universities. And the best universities are going to be the best socialists. And the best guy from Harvard is going to be the editor of the New York Times. They're going to control the media. And the media is going to make it you know, disreputable to defend capitalism and to stand up to the socialists. And so, uh, in, fact, in fact, something that he highlights is that the far left, by controlling like the Ivy League and things like that, will all, and controlling the media, will ultimately control respectability. And so if you don't agree with the New York Times, if you don't agree with that Harvard professor or Paul Krugman, then you're just not respectable. Like, mm -hmm. He's got a Nobel Prize. What do you got? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and once that happens, he said, there'll be nobody willing to stand up to them, and the socialists will just win. And then Hayek told us when the socialists win why it turns into a totalitarian state. And you can see this already with the you know, vaccine mandates and stuff like that. They really do have totalitarian tendencies. But the main thought is that, that they had a monopoly on the media. They had uh, control of respectability. You know, very few people are willing to stand up to them. I think you and I have always been, but we've watched a lot of people chicken out around us, right, at think tanks that we used to be at, where it seems like everybody's afraid of what the New York Times might say about yeah. them. Well, and, and, and that monopoly on, on sort of how to look at the world was something that Schumpeter said was going to doom us to socialism. Well, that happened to me in a visit to uh, the, the Bush White House when I went in to visit one of the guys, I think, I'll, I'll make him unnamed, but he was there in his small office. You know, you don't have big offices there, but he had one, and he was there, and the New York Times was laid out in front of him, and he was reacting to everything that was in the Times uh, defensively, and the, and the Times was actually setting the agenda. Yeah. And when you're in that mode, you, you lose. Right, and and so so then the other thing, where you know, just to mention some of the great thinkers whose work I go into in the book and relate to Donald Trump after really digging into what the guy was truly like, is that there's this guy named Marshall McLuhan that that we're old enough, so we kind of remember him, but he said that the internet in the '60s he wrote this was going to fundamentally change society because the people who control information, who monopolize information, so call it like the New York Times and the Evening News, are suddenly going to find themselves in a competition for our attention. And the competition is going to be against potentially millions of voices. And in that competition for attention, you know, who wins the competition for attention isn't necessarily going to be the guy that's respectable in the views of the New York but, Times. But, but, and that, just to finish the thought is, that's what Donald Trump did. So what Donald Trump did is he, he did an end around of the left's controlled media through, you know, by winning the competition for attention as like this brilliant tweeter who was at times offensive and things like that. But the offensiveness was attractive. Well, he dis disintermediated the establishment, exactly. establishment media. But then we all thought when the internet was first coming, there was going to be just this fantastic place where all the ideas could flourish and people would self-organize and it would get away mm -hmm. from, from a top-down control of uh, ideas and, and, and information. Well, that hasn't happened because what's happened, the power's aggregated in the social media companies and they're acting in the way the New York Times used to act. Right, well, that's happened, but that didn't happen. Like, if that happened... He had a window. He had, he had a, a window. window. We had, but, but, and here's the final thing, and, and this is really, really important. That, so what McLuhan said, basically, again, in the 60s, was that what's going to happen is you're going to start with a competition for attention, and then, you know, interesting people, maybe the most outrageous people, they're going to win that competition for attention. But then the, the powers that be 
and he can't believe it, he said this in the 60s, are going to organize their inattention and recognize that it's their most powerful weapon. They're going to explain, organize explain, their inattention. And so mean? what we're going to do is we're going to say, you can't look at Trump. We're going to take him off our platform. We're going to organize the inattention toward Donald Trump so that nobody can find out what he's saying. Nobody can see what he's doing. We're going to organize inattention. And, and the thing is that where we are right now in our country is that we got really close to being a socialist country in Obama, under Obama, but, but Biden's pushing it much, much harder and faster in part, part because I think he is panicked about the, the strides that Trump made. But the thing that made it so that Trump could win is now basically coalescing against him and everybody else who would be a defender of capitalism. And so that's the final part about the drift that I think is so important, is that we can defeat these guys, but we have to understand what they're doing and we have to collectively stand up against it because they can cancel Donald Trump, they can cancel this guy or that guy, but they can't cancel you know, a million of us. And so we all have to stand up and start defending capitalism and we have to defend or, or, or be the, the owners of respectability, right? And this goes back to maybe what we should spend the last little bit of the show on, that, that it's not respectable to advocate the things that Democrats are advocating right now. It's economic illiteracy. So those people, we, sh we control respectability. We control the truth. We need to have the confidence to stand up and assert that because it's true. And we need to do it, not just me, I'll get, I'll get canceled, right? Like probably a month after my book comes out, I won't have a, a Twitter account anymore. But if we all do it, if we all look yeah. at these historical forces and stand up to them, we can defeat them. Yeah, we did a show last week on masks and uh, distancing and lockdowns. And, and I expect YouTube's going to find out that, that you know, said, we said some things they don't agree with. And so we're going to be... But so far, I think we're not going to get censored. I think we're okay with this show. Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Kevin Hassett, uh, brilliant thinker, extraordinary, worked with President Trump, interesting uh, background. And he also uh, has written a very interesting book called The Drift, which, uh, which talks about things like how Marshall McLuhan predicted where we'd be now with the social media phenomenon. Also, Schumpeter basically laid out the playbook for the last right. 100 years, and, and here we are. And, and so therefore, we understand exactly what's going on. And, and once you do that, once you understand the enemy, you can defeat him. And, and I think that that's what I'm hoping to accomplish with, it, with this book, is to help everybody understand exactly what's going on. It all makes sense. What do we do about the social media companies? I mean, we're very, we're drifting, I suppose, from hard economic things. But it seems mm -hmm. to me we have to have a voice. We need to be able to communicate with each other. How do, how do you see this playing out? Right. Well, well I think that what's going on um, is that the social media companies have behaved you know, profoundly irresponsibly. Um, and they had first mover advantage. And then there's something economists call a network externality. And so like if you have a social media platform and everybody, okay, I, I can explain okay. it. Explain network I have, that's externality, what I'm doing right now. let's go. <laughs> Basically, if, if you're at Facebook, but there's only three guys on it, then it's not that valuable. Okay. But if everybody from your high school class you know is gonna be on Facebook, then maybe you wanna sign up too. That's what a network externality is. And so what happened is if you're the first mover advantage, you have the first mover advantage of social media, then everybody goes there because everybody else goes there and, and no one can compete. And so there's a monopoly really at Facebook. There's a monopoly at Google, at Twitter, and um, they're abusing it. You know, they're profoundly a, abusing it. There's a classic scene in Downton Abbey where Carson the butler gets, they get the new Love telephone. Yeah. And he's got the telephone in the hallway and everybody gathers around. And they say, well, what's this for? I mean, who are you going to call? 
<laughs> yeah, because no one Nobody else, else has, has one. <laughs> it's exactly right. So yeah, that Carson understood network externalities back then. <laughs> uh, and, and so, so what would I do about it? This, this is a thing that um, I think. Yeah, I actually care a lot about what you would do about it too, because you know, as conservatives, our view is that you don't want to give the government power over companies yeah, and things yeah. like that because they'll abuse it. And before you know it, you know, Hunter Biden is going to be like profiting from everybody that he's ordering around, right? And, and, and so we don't want government to have power, but now we've got these monopolies that are basically political entities. It's like we live in the Soviet Union and, and Facebook and Twitter and Google or Pravda. Uh, and as conservatives, we need to stand up to them. And, uh, you know, I, I think that um, for me, like, like, so now I'm just going to take an, an extreme position, but I'm not going to assert that that's what I would do. Um, if you just like tomorrow said, Facebook, you're shut down. Just Facebook, you, you can't operate anymore because you've so abused your privilege of first mover advantage. And said that to Twitter, you know what? You're closed. Uh, then what would happen because of the internet is that, you know, a few other places would spring up that would compete to take over that space. And maybe they'd be like wary of misbehaving in a way that these guys have. I mean, can, can you imagine like, like a person who's pretty likely, I think, to be the Republican nominee uh, for the presidency in the next cycle. I mean, the president hasn't said that to me, but I would guess that he might run again, that he's not allowed to communicate with Americans because, because these you know, left-wing uh, places on, in California control access to people's attention. Well, I think, yeah, Trump, I think totally Trump's going to run again. Yeah, I, I would think he probably will too. Yeah. But it's just not acceptable. So, so I think that basically Republicans need to understand that they have to take a very, very strong stance against these guys and that they need to stop canceling people. You know, the America First Policy Institute, which is run by Brooke Rollins and is kind of like the Trump Alumni Association a little bit. There are a lot of great people from the Trump administration there. Yeah, she's there. terrific, yeah. But they, you know, they've launched a lawsuit about this against the big tech companies and they've started a website um, which I'm sorry because I'm an economist I'm spacing out the name of the website where they basically just ask Americans who feel like they've been censored to uh, to put their story up and Brooke told me this morning that that 91,000 Americans have put up stories of being censored by social media for things that they think are unreasonable 91,000 so, so and, and if you look at the 91,000 that have posted that, there's not a single one of them that's a liberal. But let's talk about lines of action. I don't think antitrust works. I don't think breaking them up into little pieces. I mean, no, it's I sort agree. of like my analogy is metaphor is, remember uh, Fantasia, the Disney movie with Mickey and the, and the buckets of water, and there was this yeah. bucket of water, the big broom, and he got an ax out. And it, instead of destroying the broom with the water, he created hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. And I think the culture of Silicon Valley is sufficiently progressive left that if you broke it up even, I think you'd still end up with a lot of the same political bias in these companies. Um, and, and it's not really an economic issue. It's a, it's a speech issue. And so it mm -hmm. seems like we've got to get at something about maybe it's Section 230. Are you... Well, this is the thing that, and so, so what, what the America First Policy Institute. You know, for those that don't know, that, Section 30, 230 right. basically gave a carve out that protected the social media companies from getting sued for the content was on it, but also gave them the the, the power to police the content that was on it. So it's a little bit right. uh, both getting both ways. Well, I think that that what Brooke Rollins' team thinks is that this can be resolved through litigation. 
that that there are you know basically uh, you know constitutional yeah. theories that these guys are violating your constitutional rights when they deplatform you, and you know they've got cases before judges all over the country. I think that there's three separate cases. Do they right have now. a big checkbook? Excuse me. Do they have a big checkbook? Well, I'm sure that people who are because the litigation could help strategy them. is expensive, and yeah. you're up against you're up against. I mean, the, the biggest, case, the biggest, you know, the biggest checkbooks on the planet or the social media companies. All, all I can say is that what if, if you look at the facts on the ground, they're so terrible for the big internet companies okay. that you know any sensible judge is going to be sympathetic to the Good. arguments that the Brooks team is making. Let's do economic illiteracy. Mm -hmm. uh, the the bill we're talking about now that Pelosi and Schumer are pushing is the reconciliation bill. Mm -hmm. They're getting it through reconciliation because you only need 50 votes. Right. And it looks like they have 50 votes. Probably Joe Manchin pretends that he's conservative right up he's to the not, last minute. Joe, Joe Manchin. The people of West gonna, Virginia should really be ashamed of Joe Manchin. Probably. They should be ashamed. Um, they want to repeal Trump's tax cuts. They want a new death tax so that it would kill small businesses. Um, they've got a PRO Act, which eliminates right-to-work laws in the state, so everybody's got to join a union and pay union dues. They've, they've now launched a new firm of Obamacare, federal takeover of health care, um, paid parental leave, and here's one that we love. They want to tax unrealized capital gains. I think that one dropped out, but but they do want to do that, but I think that one's dropped out of the bill I've heard. That okay, well, maybe... <laughs> Can you imagine if your house goes up 5% uh, in value this year that they're going to tax that as income? I mean, well, that's what they're planning, that's what they're planning on doing. Yeah. Yeah, sort of a wealth tax. Yeah. Uh, and they want to spend $40 billion to hire 80,000 new internal revenue ser service agents to audit us. Um, and they want to take the debt ceiling up $6 trillion. So tell me why these are, ter I know, I want your version of how bad these ideas are and what they would do to the economy. Well, well, I want to go back to your intro, which I really thought set the stage for this conversation, you know, very, very uh, ably, that, um, you know, everybody out there, even if you've never had an economics class, knows that there's supply and there's demand. Right. And so if you go down to the market and everybody's really dying for an apple, but there's like one little farmer there with 20 apples, then he's going to be able to get a really big price for those apples. But if you go down to the you know, market and there's like 20 farmers and they each have, you know, vats filled with apples, then apples are going to be pretty cheap, especially at the end of the day, right, when they don't want to take them home. And, and so that's supply, that's demand. And so what the Biden administration is doing is first, uh, you know, they're lighting a fire of demand by throwing cash at everybody and printing money to do so. And so demand is going through the roof. But at the same time, with heavy regulation and shutting down pipelines and increasing the corporate tax and paying people not to work, they're attacking supply. And so if you reduce supply enormously, in fact, in fact their proposals reduce aggregate supply more than has ever been experimented with in US history. Okay, it's the biggest negative supply shock in history. And they're doing that while they're giving us the biggest positive demand shock in history. And so what happens? Well, you've got all this demand chasing less and less supply. And so, you know, the apples are going to be incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. You're going to so have inflation. a lot of inflation. inflation yeah. And so the 7% inflation that we have right about now, that's about what the rate is. That really hurts, you know, ordinary Americans. It hurts me, it hurts you, it hurts everybody who's listening. Because people who don't switch jobs especially tend to have their salary changed like in January once a year. Yeah. Uh, and the prices are going up right now. And so the, your take-home pay uh, under Joe Biden so far this year has dropped in value by, like say, at an annual rate, about 7%. So you've got 7% 
less real income right now than you had last January when he was inaugurated. And it's going to accelerate from there if they pursue these policies because they're giving us the biggest ever demand shock and the biggest ever, ever negative supply shock at the same time. That's just totally economically illiterate. And again, these people might pretend to control respectability, but that's just stupid. That's insane, you know, and, and, and it feels like all these far left economists all over the country that aren't speaking what up is, right what, now. What, what's Krugman's PhD in? Uh, you know, politics would be my guess, but it's, it's supposedly economics. No, it's some arcane piece of economics that really has nothing to do with what he opines on. Oh, yeah, that, yeah he, 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 opines he, on he wrote social some papers policy. on international economics back in the day. Yeah, know, but, but they were absolutely un, un, totally detached from what he claims is his expertise is now. Yeah, I really don't understand, like, what's going on in, in the mind of that person. You know, the, How the, did, the things, I, the, the, uh, the meanness and, and, and the certainty about things that are dead wrong, but yeah. lead us in a steeply socialist direction. You know, but, but if you think about Paul Krugman, that he's actually the poster child for the drift, going back to my book. I hate to blurb too much. But my book describes this, this, exactly why I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a fan of blurbs. But, but that's, let's, exactly let's why, that's exactly why guys like Paul Krugman you know, exist, is the drift is a very, very powerful historical force, and it's threatening our, our country right now. And people need to understand where it's coming from and how to fight it. And, and I think I've got a good idea for that. You're watching Bill Walton's show on with uh, Kevin Hassett, uh, former uh, president, presidential advisor who's written a terrific book that we're going to go through. And we get to read it when? In November? Yeah, and then I'll come back in November. We'll, yeah, we'll come we'll back in November. I'll have a chance to read it. And <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna, because you get into solutions in the book. I right. mean, what are, what are our lines of action? Right. Well, well again, um, one of the things that uh, is a key tactic of the left is intimidation. So controlling respectability and intimidation. And too often, um, especially like public intellectuals on the right, have seen, you know, somebody like Paul Krugman go after someone and bully them, you know, in like really almost unspeakable ways mm -hmm. and thought to themselves, geez, I'm glad he's not attacking me. Yeah. But but so so, you know, when, when you've seen these guys come after me, did you ever see anybody like step up and say, hey, wait, that's out of line? No, people don't do that. Right. Because they're afraid they're going to be next. And so you think about it that, that uh, you know, I, I worked at a think tank. Yeah, you've, you ta you've at... taken your fair share of. Uh, yeah. Of yeah. And, and when's the last time anyone when I was in the White House from the American Enterprise Institute stood up and said, wait a minute, that's not fair. What Hasn't you're happened. Right. And, and so no. the point is that, that these bullies have you know basically made wimps of conservatives and what we have to do is rally around our principles and stand up for them and if we do that we will win because we are right and people you know did have wage growth under trump that we haven't seen since the second world war income inequality did go down black unemployment rates were the lowest that we've ever ever seen in u.s history you know those positive benefits of the policies are visible to people and they yearn for them and the point is that they'll just disappear if we don't talk about them, but we have to collectively talk about it. You know, not just one person, but a million people, and we have to stand up to the bullies. And if you see someone bullying someone else, you need to say, hey, stop that. You know, you're, you're being a beast. Uh, and, and, and one example, uh, we had an event um, and, and, uh, here in Washington recently where all the ambassadors from the Middle East countries, including Israel, that signed the Abraham Accords met and talked about how it's going. Jared Kushner gave a talk there. Uh, and the Abraham Accords, something else that Donald Trump did, right? He brought peace to the Middle East, are really, really working. And, and to hear the Israeli ambassador talk about like the first ever uh, Israeli girl, her name was Maya, was born in the 
United Arab Emirates recently. And so, so that that's kind of what happens when you have peace deals. Well, in the middle of this thing where we're actually celebrating Arabs and Israelis, you know, starting to work together, starting to trade together, even having babies in each other's countries, uh, this code pink lady stood up and started screaming. Mm. Okay, so honest to goodness, uh, you know, she was, you know, gently pushed out by security, and I, I you know, commend their, their uh, gentleness. Um, but that behavior is unacceptable. You know, she's basically, you know, she, she's pushing, you know, anti-Semitism. Uh, like, so, so to, to, to go and protest a conference where Arabs and Israelis have finally gotten together and signed, you know, recognize each other, put embassies in each other's countries, and, and, and started to trade. You know, there's Israeli farmers farming in Morocco now, you know, putting up avocado farms. And to go and, and to protest that the way she did is just evil. It's wrong. And well, we have to stand up to that stuff and, you, and not be but, intimidated but, but by But it. you put your finger on something that, you know, my, my wife Sarah worked, uh, she laughs, she has a reliably left-wing resume. She worked for the New Republic and Harper's, and she had an epiphany. Wait a second, this is all crazy. You know, I've got to do something. And, you know, she recognized what you just said. Our ideas work, their ideas don't work. And it's as simple as that. And right. if you look at economic history, it's just an economic... And that's and why they're social... trying to shut you up. Yes. But she said the thing that struck her was they all stick together. They protect each other largely. And, and our side is not. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the things that we're talking about in The Drift, is, is like basically giving a field guide to standing up for one another. So as an entrepreneur, I do tend to think in terms of how we could organize something. We actually need to organize something, a virtual salon, to, to a mutual support group for people. And when somebody gets singled out and attacked, uh, bring, the, bring, bring the cavalry in. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's almost as simple as that. Take a pledge to really support each other when they get attacked. And, and, but honestly, if... And if enough of us do that then it loses its effectiveness. Right. But, but honestly, like, like I'll give an example, um, that uh, labor supply for people uh, you know, throughout the income distribution, but especially kind of in the middle and the bottom, isn't really super responsive to tax rates. Uh, and so if you were to change the marginal tax rate from 20% to 21% for the middle class, I wouldn't support that. But anyone who said that that's going to have like huge negative effects, I think would have the economics wrong. Mm -hmm. Because people just, you know, people who are working, people might decide not to work, but most people who are working are still going to go to work even though they have to pay 1% more. And, and, and you know, there, but there are conservatives who would say that I just committed blasphemy and so on, right? And so, but, but if you were to sort of say, hey, you know, you're wrong about this and, and you address the specifics, the substance, then we celebrate that. Yeah, that's what conservatives are all about. We love lively debate. But if you come in and, and you basically, you're a liar, you're a scoundrel, ad you're, you're an ad, idiot. Ad, ad, you know? ad and that's, and that's, that's yeah. what they do. You, you know, and I, I read about this in the book that, that uh, approximately, like, like, so I'm going to paraphrase, I had it exactly right in the book, but, but the first time I go on CNN in the White House, uh, I was on Fried Zakaria's show, and he introduced me about like this. He said, well... Uh, my next guest is Kevin Hassett, who's chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Who is Kevin Hassett, you might ask? And then they played a <laughs> clip of Larry Summers from Harvard University, and, and this is what his quote was. Kevin Hassett is either uh, a liar or stupid or both. That's how they introed me on CNN. Right? I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah, but the point is that, that when you see people acting like that, yeah. you know, we need to take it to them. You know, we just say, you can't bully me. 
you know, yeah. and, 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 and if I see him, you know, or anyone, you know, and, and actually Larry's a brilliant economist and says a lot of good stuff, okay, that I have no, I don't have any grudge about. Like, it, it was, he was upset about the tax cuts, and, you know, whatever. You know, I could take it. But the point is, if you see somebody from Harvard trying to bully somebody, oh, he's an idiot, then we should say, you know, shut up. Stop, stop being a bully. Tell me what he said wrong. Mm-hmm. And that we as a group need to just start doing that and insist that everybody else do it too. Do we have the vehicles to do that? Do we have the what? What are our what are what are our avenues to do that? Well, I think that we do. Um, you, you mentioned that you know I, I'm now really super active at National Review. Right. Um, I think everybody should go to National Review every day because uh, it's really hitting the ball out of the park now. I think that uh, you know there's still some conservatives that really didn't like the president and still don't, but there's a lot of people who are well. The like, never Trump, the never Trump Review. thing has really divided us. Right, but it, but if you go look at how it's healed at National Review, the Never Trump really? thing, I think you, yeah, I really believe. I, I'm not saying that there aren't people that are still pretty upset about some of the things that the president did, but it's really focused on substance, not on cancel culture. Well, have you and, gotten to Jonah? <laughs> Jonah, <laughs> you know, I, I think Jonah has strong opinions, and I love I know, the guy. He does. <laughs> you know, but 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 the point is that that's what conservatives should be about. We should yeah. be places where people could argue about: is this guy good or is he isn't? And and, and, and I think that there are places like National Review, uh, places like Fox News, places like the Wall Street Journal that get more and more attention. Like if you, you look at Gutfeld's ratings, for God's sakes, right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's because they're actually not going to play games with these bullies. And, and, and so the point well, is Gutfeld that... Gutfeld did in his own way what Trump did, which he takes on political correctness every single minute. Right. And he and won't be bullied. Yeah. And people love it. Yeah. And, and so, so if you love it when somebody else can't be bullied, then you shouldn't be bullied either. It's basically the point. Okay, well, I want to work with you on this. Let's yeah. figure out something, and we'll yeah, we'll come back Great when the things. book comes back. I'll I've read all your prescriptions, and we'll we'll yeah we'll start a movement. Or I hope so. Okay, Kevin Hassett, uh, great friend and and brilliant uh, brilliant thinker. Uh, Larry Summers was it Larry Summers? Not was who? who no, who, Larry. Who? Yeah, but again, don't no hard feelings towards Larry Summers. Okay. Well, you can say anyway, negative Kevin things. has no hard feelings. I do. <laughs> uh, you, you've been watching the Bill Walton show, listening, and we're on all the major podcast platforms on our on our website as well, thebillwaltonshow.com. And the show streams on CPAC now every Monday night at 7 p.m. And hope you'll uh, take it in then. So thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.